0: Hi, and welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm Dr. Brady Brewer, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics. And joining me today is Dr. Todd Keithley, who is also a faculty member in the Department of Agricultural Economics and is the Schrader Chair of Farmland Economics um, here in the Department of Agriculture. Today's podcast, we are focusing on the topic of understanding the USDA farm income forecast. With that, uh, welcome, Todd. All right. Thank you, Brady. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, you're becoming quite the regular here uh, on this podcasting about the the farmland values, and now you're going to lend your expertise on the USDA farm income forecast. Um, So, you know, this is a topic that you've done a lot of research in, in this area, both at your time at the USDA ERS and then with your time at the University of Illinois. What got you started in this line of research? So a a lot of it actually started with my time at the University of Illinois. So when I was at ERS,
1: Um, I was a member of the farm economy branch, which produces this forecast, but I actually wasn't a member of the forecast team. Um, So I worked alongside of them, uh, kind of in the trenches, but I wasn't directly involved with the forecast effort. Um, And then when I was at the University of Illinois, I had to give an outlook talk to a group of farmers and and bankers and some folks around the the sector. Um, And it was about the changing farm economy. So this is as we started to dip into the lower returns, farm income was declining. And so I put in some information about the USDA forecast and then I thought, well, you know, just like here at the Center of Commercial Agriculture, we're concerned with giving ag producers and farmers the best information we can. And so I wanted to give them some indication of like, how good is this forecast? Like when USDA forecast, how accurate is it? Can we depend on it? Um, and I looked around and there really wasn't any information on it, uh, surprisingly, uh, just kind of a lack of information. So I spent some time actually building a history of the farm income forecast at that time, dated back to the 1975. Um, of all of the forecasts the USDA released for farm income.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into some of the specific results of some of the research you've done because you have some pretty recent uh, uh, research on this topic and we'll go through that uh, um, throughout this podcast. So let's first start off here. uh, Let's define what, when we say farm income forecast, which one are we talking about?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a tricky question uh, because people aren't always clear. So the USDA should say, the, the USDA has a congressionally mandated uh, uh, qualification that they need to provide estimates of the costs and returns of agricultural production. That's a major component of the statutory requirement of the USDA is that to let policy know uh, policymakers know what is the what are the costs and returns associated with farm production in the United States. And so the the USDA farm income numbers they produce uh, estimates since 1910. Um, annually, yeah. but they are designed to basically, similar to what we see from other major government departments and agencies, to, of measuring what is our value, what's the contribution the farm sector has to the broader economy. Um, and so part of that is they release a variety of financial measures. Um, thinking about it as sort of a farm management context, they release a balance sheet, estimate and forecasts, and then they release... Actually, two variations of the farm income forecast. So there's what's called net farm income and net cash income. So net cash income, um, and it, it's weird because when you read about it in the papers, people talk about it, even policymakers, other economists. People don't always differentiate which one they're talking about. Often, I think there's a natural bias, which everyone's moving around more. Yeah, which um, which one gives us more information to talk about? Earth yeah, or- yeah. Which one's higher or lower or moving faster? But net cash income is basically. It's close to sort of cash accounting idea in terms of what is the cash flow in terms of expenses and revenues moving around the farm sector where the net farm income includes some other non-cash movements. So basically movements and balance sheet issue items. So things like the value of grain and storage or value of breeding stock that aren't directly translated into the cash side of the business just yet, but it is a change in that value or cost of production. Um, So net farm income is the residual after farmers uh, incur all their expenses, and they get all the revenues through marketing their commodities, and then they pay off all their stakeholders, they pay their rent, they pay their taxes, and then what's that residual amount? They pay themselves. What's that residual amount left over? That's what essentially net farm income is.
0: Yeah, so uh, the net cash farm income is what we're gonna be diving into here today. And and just for informational purposes, so the USDA, when they released the net cash farm income forecast for a particular year, um, so and I do want to take a a quick moment to point out the difference between we're going to be using two different uh, definitions here. So forecast is referring to the estimates of uh, what's going to happen in the future. Uh, prediction, prediction, the and then we're also going to be using the term estimate. And really, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to be focusing on the forecast. But the estimates come into play because that's the year after. Those are there's going to be a significant time lag there, and we'll get into the uh, you know estimates are really like the 2020 uh, farm cash income estimates won't be released till August 2021. So we're a ways away so, yeah, from it. So
1: the estimate is the official measure after the fact, after it's over, saying this is what happened. And those, through a variety of reasons, um, it's a large undertaking, right? So this is just like it's said, sort of thing about the other sector of the economy. This is a system of national accounts. And so it's a big undertaking to figure out what what value did the farm sector bring to the economy and so that is the official estimate and those come out in august following the following year so we they just released the 2019 uh, income estimates Uh, but because of that time lag they want to provide more timely information to various decision makers these are also inputs and other models part of it is what goes into gdp estimates and forecasts by the federal government Um, So they provide more timely information
0: um, through the forecast, which they update multiple times a year. Yeah, so the forecast has four different times that they release this forecast. So for 2020, the the current year that we're in, uh, the first forecast that they release is in February. And they they forecast farm cash income for 2020 through the year uh, 2020 growing cycle. Then they will update it, which is what they just did here on September 2nd, and we'll get into the September 2nd numbers um, here later on in the podcast. Then they update it again in uh, November. De- no, well, they'll, they'll update it December 2nd. Yeah, they, they worked it's on it. A, it. shifted a little
1: bit. It's it's sort of a traditional cycle, as, as you were alluding to. Sorry to sort of step on you here a little bit, but the forecasts are first released usually in February with the USDA Outlook Forum. So that's the big time of the year when all of the USDA gets against it. You know, what do we expect to happen to the food and farm and ag sector in the coming calendar year? So they released the first forecast February. They updated in August, and a lot of that reflects changes in growing growing season information, so we get those uh, summer production reports. And then it's updated again in November, um, sort of after harvest, and they also get some detailed financial information um, from the previous year, and so it gets updated in November. And they actually forecast it one more time, which is the next February when they're releasing the first forecast of the new year. Yep. So they will they will forecast 2020 again in December, December second, and then they will do it again in February of 2021. But no one pays attention because they're all talking about the 2021 number
0: at that point. Yeah, at that point we uh, the you know. By February 2021, we have a fairly good idea of what the 2020 numbers are, so we're, we're focused on, you know, farmers are thinking about planning for the 2021 year, so it typically doesn't get uh, much traction, especially in the media. Um, so let's think a little bit about how they make these numbers. So it's a bottom-up approach. So they're actually forecasting individual sections um, for crops and commodities uh, and expenses as well uh, that go into this calculation.
1: Yeah, so there's a, it's a huge undertaking. There's a, a, at, within the Economic Research Service, there's a team of, I want to say, roughly half a dozen economists that devote the majority of their year to this production of this, uh, this report and this, this information. Um, they're using thousands of series of variables that they run through programs of thousands of equations because they're forecasting. So, for example, if we think about revenues, that's split into crops and livestock is sort of clumpy, but then within crops and within livestock, there's other subcategories that get forecasted individually, and then at the end of the day, all of those forecasts get added into an accounting equation, which is your revenues minus your expenses. That and then the residual then is your is your income.
0: Yeah, so so just for example, with you know, if you think about the recent events here in 2020 with the derecho in Iowa, that's all taken into account because we're forecasting the individual cash receipts for soybeans and corns across the U.S.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a better at sort of things that have happened or are happening and showing up in other places in USDA data. Um, they're not exactly real time in terms of you know if there's a drought that sets in. Um, you know, a week before the report is released, it's probably not going to show up just yet. Um, so there's a little bit of timeliness there in terms of what, but it is sort of the most up-to-date data across a variety of sources. And that, and that is, I should also point out that that doesn't include, or that's not limited to just the sort of commodity trade. That also includes macroeconomic conditions um, and, and various other parts that will affect how those pieces move around in, the, in our sector.
0: Yeah, and, and I do want to make a key point here because, Todd, uh, uh for, for those who uh, maybe have listened to some other uh, things that we've done, you always make a point of correcting me that these are sector-level um, uh, uh, numbers that we're trying to do here. So you said, you know, they're going to the GDP stuff, especially on the balance sheet side for those type of forecasts. Um, you know, it may not be representative of a particular farmer, but this is sector level numbers.
1: So this is this is macroeconomics, right? So much like when we look at the Department of Labor to know what's going on with the labor market broadly across the United States, um, our Department of Energy, what's going on broadly. So this is what's broadly going on in the farm sector in terms of what is the what is the accounting system. So it's not necessarily an average farm, uh, and it's all of our commodities that we produce, right? So it's obviously things like corn and soybeans. But it's also very minor commodities. Sometimes those get sort of lumped in together given the way the USDA produces data. But it's it's very granular data that builds into it. So we're getting what's the big overall picture. So we will have times, obviously, in our, our farm sector, where some subsectors a you know, particular commodity group is struggling. Um, but yet the aggregate farm income is rising because you know, so you know, if you're uh, you know, I don't want to pick on any particular commodity, but let's say let's say you're a dairy. And you're, and you're having a very rough period for dairies, but farm income overall is still going up, even though you know, the dairy sector is really struggling. And that's one of the challenges with this data, particularly from those of us, like a commercial agri- Center for Commercial Agriculture, we, we work with a broad group of farmers around the Corn Belt, um, and that their exact experience may not be represented in what's going on broadly
0: within the sector. Yeah, and, and just to clarify, the the sector numbers, the USDA still publishes those uh, cash receipts as well.
1: Yeah, and they, and they do break
0: out, um,
1: one of the advantages of doing that sort of bottom-up forecasting approach is you can break down and look at how they're forecasting those various components and maybe where those pieces are coming up and down. Um, and then they also, with part of the forecast, do differentiate more in sort of a, a related forecast uh, about farm businesses, and they split out a little bit more in terms of types of farms. Um, and, and they do try to give some geographic information in terms of, you know, where where are different uh, regions in the U.S. Um, experiencing different things in terms of costs and returns.
0: All right, so th- that provides you a little bit of background of what these farm income forecasts are. And, and as I said, we're mainly going to be talking about the, the cash, uh, net cash farm income here. But I really think the, the million dollar question you're taught is, are these accurate? So when, when USDA releases their forecast for the 2020 year in February 2020, is it accurate?
1: So historically, again, um, we're going looking at the history of the forecast performance. So I've worked with data back to 1975. Um, and historically, the initial forecast release in February under-predict realized values. So they're a very conservative forecast. They tend to underpredict. predict uh, uh, so in the report I'm working on now that's going to come out through the through our department's Purdue Agricultural Economics report, I focus on the 1988 or 1981 to current period. We found, I find an average for net cash income, That first forecast is, is on an average 10.4% below the realized values. So it's a pretty sizable chunk that they are underestimating. As we go through the forecasting cycle, that bias pretty much decreases. Um, and so by you know the August number, they're better than February. November is even better than that. By the time we get to February, and definitely as you sort of alluded to earlier, by the time we get to the final forecast next February, they're unbiased, right? So they're they're very good predictors. Uh, but they're they're as we are with every kind of prediction that any of us make. As we get closer to the end of that uh, time, we're trying to predict, the better we get.
0: Yeah, and that that just goes for any economic forecast. The the more data you get in, that's more timely, more recent. Um, you know, and the the, the the your forecasting period gets shorter. Yeah. Uh, you're going to become uh, more accurate. The you know the analogy here is maybe to compare it to some of you know uh, some another government agency. Think about like the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. The BLS puts out uh, you know unemployment numbers and stuff like that. Uh, they're always constantly revising those um, uh, forecasts, revising the estimates once they become actual, um, as they get more information, as it gets more accurate, you know, they're, they're constantly updating it. So this is kind of to be expected with any forecast of this nature.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of things that,
0: um,
1: so, you know, there's every prediction that's made is wrong to some degree, right? Yes. Um, and so there's a variety of things that can influence how wrong we are. Um, obviously the value of the information we have to consider now informing our expectations as part of it our our talent and ability to manage that right so we're dealing with you know the usda has a team of trained economists that are looking at so much data that you know at times you know i feel sort of bad looking at history going back to like the 1970s thinking about you know now with a computer processor we're able to do you know clean and analyze a lot of this data much easier than it would have been at the time um, and so it's, what is our sort of our natural talent? And then the, the, the other big piece is there are things that even if you make your best guess that you cannot foresee happening. So in February, when the USDA released initial forecast, I doubt there were many that anybody in the USDA anywhere that would understand what the coronavirus pandemic would do to our ag and food markets, right? I don't think that that was sort of in there. So, you know, if if you if you're way off in what you were saying in this last winter about what's going to happen this year, um, I mean that that's that's part of the process too, and and that's the other reason as you get closer, that a lot of that uncertainty collapses. You get better information, but also you're just your general uncertainty collapses. You get better predictions.
0: Yeah, I mean that was you know going back to uh, April and March when we started to see those first forecast models of how many people would get coronavirus and and all the stuff that people were trying to forecast, whether it be deaths or, or hospitalizations or or cases. You saw a wide range, right? Like some forecasts said oh, oh fifty thousand. We've obviously surpassed that number now. Some people said like four million in just the state of Texas, um, which which was probably on the upper end, and that's just because lack of information, lack of knowledge about the data is going to produce i like the word that you use there uncertainty and the same is true for um usda forecasts here the the february forecast there's going to be more uncertainty than the august which is going to have more uncertainty than than the november and so on and so forth um so in your latest round of research you looked at some of some of the biasness of of these forecasts and you found that uh, they tend to underpredict by about 10.4 percent can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah. So another thing. Um, so I've had a couple couple uh, papers that we worked on recently with some colleagues from around the country, other land grant universities, and we're finding that the initial underprediction. A lot of that actually stems from their underprediction of the cat uh, crop and livestock receipts. So it's underpredicting those revenues um, initially in the early in the year. Um, so that's where a lot of the source of the error is coming in. And then the other part, uh, which um, it's, the, I mean, you always love your most recent paper. I uh, was excited to talk about it. Uh, the we looked at so this idea that every time you make a prediction that is wrong, yep, and when you're wrong, there's some cost to being wrong, right? And so what the analogy or the model that economists use is saying that we are trying to minimize those costs. What is the cost of being wrong in our prediction? We're trying to minimize that as much as possible. And in estimating how the USDA, you know, is, is influenced by those costs, we find that they systematically underpredict because they have a higher cost to overpredicting, right? So, uh, you know, here in Indiana, we think about basketball a lot, right? So if you're shooting free throws, and you know that you tend to always shade to the right, then when you line up, you won't line up straight to the rim. You'll point a little bit. To the uh, or if you're playing golf and you know you have a slice, then you'll, when you stand on the tee box, you'll turn your body a little bit to compensate. And so the USDA has a tendency to sort of underpredict. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, I've never heard a farmer complain about making more money than the USDA told them they were going to make. And so they have this natural incentive to be a little bit conservative in terms of, well, if I'm going to be wrong here, it's a better outcome that if the incomes end up coming in higher. The worst case scenario is if you say, oh, we're going to have record farm incomes, farmers are going to be so rich, and then everybody makes peanuts, well, except for peanut farmers, but, if you, <laughs> but it, and if everybody makes very little returns,
0: yeah. there's going
1: to be a lot of people upset, saying, well, why well, yeah, did you I'm, tell us? Right? We didn't know.
0: If well, I go buy that extra tractor from John Deere case because you told me that we're going to have record farm income and it doesn't materialize, I'm going to be upset. I would yeah, either-
1: or, or if, we, you know, if we think about those of us who work in extension, right? people ask us, you know, what's a reasonable cash rent this year? And if we say, Oh, you're gonna make so much money, pay whatever you want in rent, yeah, and then it doesn't, and then those those expenses come due, you're gonna be pretty annoyed with who told you that. So there's a, a natural bias and then in uh towards sort of being conservative in your forecast. And and that research we've done, that phenomenon is common across a lot of forecasts, government forecasts, private forecasts. Again, I'm speaking sort of outside of agricultural forecasting alone. So looking at other sectors of the economy, you know, people tend to under-forecast, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve under-forecast what's going to happen with GDP growth. And, uh, you know, anything that's sort of a, a positive outcome, we tend to under-predict what that could what be. That- could be because we don't we don't want to err on that other side
0: yeah and i would say the same goes through uh for a lot of uh publicly traded companies more often than not you see them revising past earnings estimates upward right they underpredict because as an investor you always want to be like well my earnings per share just went up it, I, I never want to learn oh you mean you didn't make it made as or you know didn't make as much per share as, as what you thought you did, yeah you so.
1: yeah you, you don't want to say well i made this investment in your company because you told me that you were going to have this sort of growth, and then if it doesn't come due, uh, you know I have the right to be pretty annoyed with you.
0: So um, you know I said the, the ten point four percent is typically on average what they underpredict. So does this mean if you're a farmer and, and you hear you know the, the September second numbers, which was right at um, right over a hundred billion dollars for net cash uh, farm income, can we just add ten percent to that? Well, so we have to go back to February.
1: Right. So yeah. I think the initial one's down 10.4, So, uh, which is you know, interesting because this September revision, it already went up, I think it was 5.1% do I have here? Right? Yeah. They've already increased at 5.1%. And so they're already kind of increasing the, 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 uh, what they think the return to the sector is going to be compared to what they thought it was last February. So that's why I say, again, you know, they get more accurate as you go, but you have this initial bias of low. So we, they tend to, overall, the pattern is moves to a little bit rosier. Um, so I, you know, I've had discussions with colleagues. Um, you know, we follow these numbers closely. And the other thing about the farm income numbers, one of the places that they're most used is in farm policy debates. right? So people planning and evaluating farm policy. Um, you know, anytime that there's a, a secretary of ag or the uh, chief economist of the USDA goes and briefs members of Congress, and those committees that talk about what's going on on farm, they always highlight, you know, here's what the farm income forecast is saying in terms of costs and returns in the sector. Um, so it's they're incredibly influential in policy. And so we had the experience of the last, you know, since 2014 or 15, where we had farm incomes declining. And these forecasts are naturally biased downward, again, because of this preference to not want to overpredict. they're conservative. And so what that translates to is like saying, oh, man, they're really going to go down. And so we had a lot of, you know, I push back on some good friends that work in closer to the ag media space. You know, and say, oh, farm income is going to plummet this year. And I would say, well, but we have a tendency to move up. Uh, so there's a chance it's going to be a little bit rosier when we talk about this in August than we are now currently in February. Um, but now, you know, so we're sort of seeing a, uh, hopefully like a, a bit of an uptick in farm income as farm income is starting to incline. And so maybe that, that downward bias doesn't show up as much. We can just sort of think about, well, i know these are conservative so i can expect that they will improve through the forecasting period um, but where it gets alarming is when incomes are coming down and then you have that
0: bias on- yeah and just for clarity out uh for those listening you know we're talking about generalities here so just because we say it tends to move up doesn't mean you know you could have uh you know we say the february forecast tends to underpredict 10.4 percent something could happen, and then they revise it down in August. It, it would be a very rare event, but it has happened, and, and it doesn't mean it's excluded from happening.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I had a mention that I used to work in the farm County branch that produces this, and I had a good friend there that, um, when I first started working on this research, before we had published anything, I really found much, I was building a model based off of the former history of the forecast to predict what the next forecast was going to be. So just looking for the natural pattern in the forecast itself, and I was usually within a, you know, um, a couple billion dollars. We're talking about, we're talking about $100 billion. It would be within two or three billion. It feels pretty good um, <laughs> of what their forecast would be. So I would sort of tease him. I would build this model. And then when I knew the release was coming out in a couple of days, and of course it's radio silence, he's not going to tell me what the U.S. And I, was, I, I don't have any sort of privilege to know the before the initial release. So I would email him and say, how close do you think you're going to be to you know, $104 billion or whatever, it be <laughs> that I'd predict. Uh, and so that was always kind of a fun part. But, said, but there, is a, there is a strong pattern in terms of what well, we find, again, again, there's a strong pattern in that what we call sort of the bottom line farm income or, you know, the things move around within the income statement, but that's sort of what's the overall return, which is their downward bias in February. They tend to improve in August. Sometimes they go down. Sometimes they'll, and then when we get to the, the November, the update, kind of sort of splits the difference, and then the February is actually pretty close to that November. So November is unbiased. You know. Statistically speaking, what that means is that the mistakes over the period that we're able to look at them average out to zero. So not saying that they're
0: exactly right, but
1: they cancel each other out. As there's,
0: so, there's many times they're up, they're down. So what you're saying is based on past historical performance of here is, is we can expect probably, if everything goes normally, uh, you know, they had a 5.1 increase from the February estimate to August, now to the December, we say we're calling it the November, but the December 2nd uh, release this year, we can probably expect some type of revision downward if everything goes.
1: If it's truly in the pattern, but I think, um, you know, that sort of being off by 10.4%, um, that, that that does shade that so that they'll probably, you know, there, there's a natural tendency to think that they should improve, but it. If you look at that sort of historical pattern, they'll probably come in somewhere between the February and August numbers. Um, and we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, the, this has now become a, a sport for me is watching this uh, this forecast. I, pr- I probably watch it more closely than anyone outside. The, of the rest USDA. of us do fantasy football.
0: Uh, you look at your uh, forecasting equations for the USDA farm yeah, income Yeah, so I'm,
1: I'm, I'm watching, and I and much like the uh, fantasy football, I'm watching to see, you know, as personnel changes and retirements and farm income and <laughs> Who they're going to be replaced with, and how that might affect uh, my lineup.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know how we can quite follow comparing uh, USDA farm income Force to fantasy football, but uh, I'm quite I, impressed.
1: I, yeah, I feel like that's about as far as we can take that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I well, uh, you know, I do want to highlight one of the the interesting things about the farm income forecast is that it, it's probably not a market mover like some of the other USDA. If we think about like WASD and the supply demand estimates. I mean, there's traders that. You know, the second that report gets released, the markets are reacting. Um, this is, you know, the markets don't really react as much to the farm income forecast. Maybe a little, but but because uh, you know, it's not really guess, you know, guesstimating or forecasting the uh, the the you know the, the demand or supply. The, the effects of price can be pretty marginal sometimes.
1: Well, in fact, I can touch that uh, a little bit, which is the other thing, sort of bias of of economic researchers um, you, know, you, you know here at Purdue and everywhere uh, we tend to uh, focus on the papers that we get published and a lot of times we get things published because we have a result right but uh, so I, I did have a time with a graduate student when I studied Illinois where we tried to look and see if if there was any market movements associated with farm income forecast release because we know the dates that they're released every year um, and there's essentially nothing in either the commodity market space or in the publicly traded ag companies, right? So like you're saying, there's a, there's a really rich set of literature that shows when WASDE or the production reports are released, commodity markets move immediately um, and they follow the quality of that information or they follow the direction of that information, I should say, sorry. They follow the direction of that information. Um, where this number, because for a couple of reasons, one, it's again, more of a policy aggregate um, costs and returns across the sector so it's maybe not as informative to holders of a particular commodity, um, but the other thing is it it's an aggregator, right? So they're taking thousands of USDA data pieces of information and combining them into an accounting equation. So a lot of that uh, value that they that they put out of the economy or the information has already been put out in other forms and digested, and now they're just sort of synthesizing those up.
0: So this has uh, you know been a summary of the USDA farm income forecast uh, you know we hope that you've gained some insight into how you know how the USDA comes up with these numbers when they're released what it really means for um, for the agricultural sector um, because you do see some variances between the February August November and, and the next February report um, and then the estimates that come out uh, the next year um, you know, so hopefully this has given you some, that insight so when they come out, you can utilize it better on your farm. Uh, I do want to remind everyone for more economic information, uh, please visit us at the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website at ag.purdue.edu/commercialag. Uh, and on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture and Dr. Todd Keithy, I am Brady Brewer, and we thank you for listening.